The end is not near, it's here. To think just a couple of months ago, we decided that we were going to do a Bible series on Hosea, and here we are on the last sermon. We started with Gomer, and we're ending with Israel and God's relationship, coming home, and coming back to forgiveness. Just as Hosea was told to forgive Gomer, Israel has been forgiven by God. No matter where Israel has strayed to, what God has praised, they are coming home and coming back to forgiveness. Just as well as we all need that reminder, that no matter the path that we have walked, no matter where we have gone, the thoughts that we have had, the actions that we have taken, we can always come home and come back to forgiveness. Not to an angry God, but to a God whose heart burns with compassion, a God who will hold destruction and redemption in his hands, a God who acknowledges the hardship ahead of Israel and the journey ahead of them, but also their journey back to him. God, through Isaiah, opens chapter 13 with a reminder that Ephraim has worshipped these other gods, these Baals, because of this, they will die. God says that they have died out. They are going to be like the dew, drying up in the sunlight. God says they have built these idols to other gods, kissing them, giving in to them. And those that do, well, those who give in, they will be like smoke leaving the window. This once again is reminiscent of the time that was spent on Mount Sinai, the golden calf. We've talked about this before in this study, but it is a shout back back to the Exodus story. Moses, going up the mountain, Israel gets scared, builds a god in their own image to worship by melting down their silver and gold, and then God, Moses melts it down with God's wrath, and because of God, Israel's disobedience, a whole generation dies off in the wilderness. God once again is saying, because of your disobedience, a whole generation is going to die off. They will be like the morning mist. They will be like kernels left on the threshing floor. They will be like smoke leaving a window. God makes even makes this connection reminding him that he had been their God, even their God in Egypt. When they had no Savior, he was their Savior. When they felt like they had no God, he was there. When you knew other gods, and yet you, uh, and you did not know them like you know me, your God. God tells them that, that he is the one who sustains them. Even in the wilderness, their punishment, God still provided for them. I'm going to say that again, that even in the wilderness, their punishment, God still provided for them. And this to me is always a small grace that gets overlooked and yet shows the depth of compassion that God has for his people. Think about that. God is so angry with his people that he says a whole generation of y'all are going to die out as you roam this wilderness. And yet, God still provides for them, even though he's angry with them. And even though he's angry with just only part of them, he provides for all of them. Even though God's anger is with some of them, he provides for all of them. Think about that. God could have just gave food to the ones who were good, or who God deserved it. But no, God gave it to everyone. And it's important to remember that God's provision is for everyone, and not just for those who, quote, deserve it, unquote. No matter what people try to tell you, the story here, the biblical story here, is God provided for all of them in the wilderness. All of them. But this provision, God warns Israel, has led them to a very dangerous place. 
They've grown proud and very comfortable. When they no longer were in need, they no longer felt the need for God. And I know that we can all relate to this because probably for a lot of us, we've related to God at some point in our story this way. We've had that test that we should have studied more for, or the hangover that would not quite go away, or the crush that would not quite pay attention to us. We had the small experience that we wish would go a different way. But there were probably larger things too. Maybe we prayed for the medical issue of us or someone we cared about. Maybe we prayed for that we were worried about not having enough food for us or our family or someone we cared about. Maybe we prayed because we did not feel like we could make it to tomorrow. And in these moments, we reach out and God hears us. But what happens when we are no longer in need? Do we still pray? Do we still seek him? Do we still rely on God when we do not have an immediate need? Or do we forget the life that led us into prosperity? Do we forget the blessing of the prayer answered? I struggle because, once again, in the name of this series, I I see this happening in the American church. I see an American church that struggled in the beginning, and then God blessed the American church. And as the American church grew, it seemed to grow less dependent on God. Once we had all the wealth and power, what more could we ever want or desire? Once the prayer was answered, we just kind of moved on. And now I see in America, and church that seems so to be out of touch with culture that surrounds it. I see an American church that has lost its voice, its witness. I see an American church that is slowly dying out. And yet, once again, God still provides For all of us, for the good pastors and the bad, for the good churches and the bad, for those who are following the kingdom of God and for those who are still caught up following in the kingdoms of this world, God still provides. So what does God do through Hosea for Israel? He says that he will become like a lion. He will arouse the people of Israel and awaken their hearts, if not by need, then by terror and fear. The Lord uses a bunch of animal imagery, including a mother bear who is separated by its clubs. Cubs? Clubs? What? what? Cubs. Which also made me think of, is there actually bears in Israel? Kind of me and my, you know, unworldliness or untraveledness. I thought, Israel, that's desert. Why are there bears? Well, after Googling, there are something called brown Syrian bears that live in Israel. So yes, God says that there can be, he will be angry like a mother bear separated from his cubs, and that is something that the people of Israel will know because bears existed. But yes, so God says that Israel is destined for destruction. He once again goes through how Israel wanted a king. We talked about this earlier in another chapter. Israel wanted a king, and God did not want to give them a king because once again, as Isidore showed us that when you have the power to throw the the ring, the one ring, into Mount Doom, and you refuse, it shows that one person having all the power could corrupt them. And God knows this. But yet, people asked, God has compassion. So God gives them a king. And then God reviles that king because of how corrupt they become and how Israel then calls out for a different king, 
or even calls out for the destruction of the king because of where they have led them. And God just kind of once again does a face palm saying, you asked for this. I knew it was going to be a bad idea, but you asked for it. So I give it to you and then you're upset with it. And there's now an interesting shift that happens in Hosea, about the midway through Hosea. So God just got done saying like, hey, you asked for a king. I'm upset with you because I gave you this king. And then corruption still continued. He says, will I ransom them from the power of the grave? Will I redeem them from death's hold? Death, where are your diseases? Grave, where is your destruction? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. That's Hosea 13, 14. And when I heard this, it sounded very familiar to me. I went back and I read 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 8. This is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood can't inherit God's kingdom. Something that rots can't inherit, inherit something that doesn't decay. Listen, I'm telling you a secret. All of us won't die, but we all will be changed. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the final trumpet, the trumpet will blast and the dead will be raised with bodies that won't decay and we will all be changed. It's necessary for this rotting body to be clothed with what can't decay, for the body that is dying to be clothed in what cannot die. And when the rotting body has been clothed in what decay, and the dying body has been clothed in what can't die, then this statement in scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up by victory, Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? Death's sting is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of all of this, my loved loved brothers and sisters, you must stand firm, unshakable, unselling in the works of the Lord always, because you know that your labor isn't going to be for nothing in the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you have this from... Hosea 13, 14, death, where are your diseases? Grave, where is your destruction? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And then Paul quotes, death will be swallowed by victory. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting? It seems that God has had a plan for redemption for Israel that still has repercussions for us today. As the Lord through Hosea told Israel that destruction is coming, he's also telling them that it's not the end. It is not the end for Israel and it's not the end for us today, which is another good reminder that no matter what we face, it is not the end. That as believers in the Father of the Resurrection and His Son, Jesus Christ, death, the end, destruction, are not, ends, uh, are not the end of what we will face. Rather, that sin and death have no power over us. Just as God promised Israel to not destroy them completely, We are promised, too, to not be destroyed by death. God is with them, which reminds us that God is now with us. So as we move into chapter 14 of Hosea, Israel begins with repentance. Repentance. Repentance can be kind of a four-letter word inside of Christianity. It can be a burden. It has been a burden that has been placed upon people, a weight that that you needed to lift, and nobody would lift it for you. Or they would, but only when the priest found you worthy, as the repentance that you gave was accepted and lifted. Repentance was something more about shame than it was about forgiveness. I'm going to say that again because I think that's important to hear. Repentance was something more about shame than it was about forgiveness. 
But repentance does actually have its place in the human psyche. We need to let go of things, otherwise the things that we keep holding on to in our mind, it will actually kind of take up space. It takes up energy as it sits in the back of our mind and in the back of our hearts. God does not desire for these things. God desires a freedom that God knows that sin will not give us. Because the sin sits in the back of our mind, in the back of our soul, in the back of our heart, it takes up space. It takes our energy away. And until we acknowledge it, we can't be freed from it. We need to acknowledge the negative things in our lives in order to be freed from it. And God offers us repentance as a way to experience that. God knows our sin. We believe that, right? As Christians, we've been sold that so many times. God knows our sins. Why do we need to tell God what God already knows? We do it because in relationship, repentance offers us an opportunity by admittance, a way of confession, so that we can experience real change. So that then we can experience real change. As Hosea 14 reminds us at the very uh, in the middle of Hosea 14 at the, at the end of the first stanza that God they uh, that he says Israel Hosea says that in God the orphan finds compassion. This small statement actually has a big societal impact. I know that once again through this study we have talked about that God cared for those on the margins and who are vulnerable. And one of the sins that he keeps continually bringing up to Israel is how they've forgotten the orphan and the widow. How they have left those who were defenseless to defend for themselves. And God says, I'm the one who defends these. Why have you left them defenseless? I have asked you to defend them and you did not care for them. Because those who got, those are the people whom God cares about. And so this becomes instrumental to us because we are over orphans. As soon as we left from the garden, we were made vulnerable. So as we wander the desert of our lives, we are made increasingly vulnerable. And yet God says, come to me, all of you who are vulnerable, all of you are burdened, and I shall give you compassion and I shall give you rest. Because in God, we find compassion. In God, we find our rest. So at the end of Hosea, despite all of the distract, despite all of the lambasting, the fire and the brimstone, God reminds Israel, Hey, remember how I told you to care for the orphan? I care for you. In me, you will find compassion. In me, the Lord your God, you will find rest. And God ends in a very poetic way. Remember, God has been alluding to the desert and the wilderness for Israel when talking about their destruction. And now God ends Hosea like this. I will, hear the, I will heal their faithlessness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I love that. I will heal their faithlessness. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. He will cast out his roots like the forest of Laban. His branches will spread out. His beauty will be like that of the olive tree and his fragrance like that of Lebanon. They will again live beneath my shadow. 
They will flourish like a garden. They will blossom like the vine. They will, or fragrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what do your idols have to do with me? It is I who answers and looks after you. I am your green. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit comes from me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Earlier in chapter 13, God says that he, that they will be like the dew, disappearing. But now God says that, it, that he will be like the dew in a way that dew can be nourishing. And once again, God is using that poetic turn of phrase in an only way that God can to mean multiple different things. Dew is something that disappears quickly, evaporating without a trace. And yet, dew is also what refreshes the plants and the flowers. It's a form of nourishment. Dew has its role in the ecology of this world. Things that can be fleeting still serve a purpose. Things that may seem worthless, pointless, still serve a purpose. And it seems that God can say, I can hold both those things in tension. Something that you see as pointless or worthless still serves a purpose. And one last important thing to make at this part of Hosea, and this has come up multiple times, Israel believed that Baal was the god of rain and thus fertility. We've talked about this multiple times throughout the study. Baal brought forth the spring and new growth. So how does God end Hosea? He reminds Israel that he will make them bloom, that he will make them blossom, that he will make their roots grow deep, and that he will produce good fruit in them. It's like God putting down his final card saying that even if you believe Baal will do these things for you, it will be me instead. You thought it was Baal who will make you flourish. It was me, God. God, through Hosea, is reminding them, as he did with Noah, look to these signs in nature to know that I am with you. The signs in the environment, the flourishing, they're supposed to be signs to you, a reminder to you that I am still with you. A reminder that I am the one who will provide for you. A reminder that I am the one who will make you grow. A reminder that I am the one who will give you comfort. A reminder that I am the one who will give you rest. Hosea ends his last verses, Whoever is wise and understands these things, whoever observes carefully knows them. Truly the Lord's ways are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the evildoers will stumble in them. Hosea offers the reminder that in all of, the observe, in all of this observe these things, and be wise in the understanding of these things. Be wise, observe, and understand these things. This is how we walk in the way of the righteous. This is how we walk the path that God has placed before us. In order for us to be wise, we need to first understand. We need to understand the fullness of God's word and careful not to interpret it in one way that is just comfortable for us and us alone. As many times as we brought it up in this study, Israel kept interpreting the word in a way that was comforting only to them and not to those who are marginalized who have been hurt. We also need to understand that just because we believe God's word says one thing, we need to be open to letting God reveal to us another thing. We need to not be so rigid in our interpretation that we don't get to see how God is growing around us. We need to have that bit of observation and let God reveal to us 
what is happening. Part of being wise when following God is to know how unwise we are. Part of understanding God is to know how inscrutable the ways of God are. And just as God reminds Israel to observe carefully by paying attention to the growth around them, the things in nature, God is reminding us to observe carefully the things in our own lives. The part of walking righteously with our Lord is to spend time observing what God is doing around us, whether it be through quiet time with the Lord, walking in nature with the Lord, journaling or praying, we need to be paying attention and observing how God is growing around us so that we can be reminded of God's goodness with us. Now, if I would be remiss if I did not spend any time in this ending talking about how I opened this series about the calling to love the American church, the prophet and the prostitute, or how I became the Ameri- how I became to love the American church again. There's this famous line from Christ that I often quote to myself and in sermons when referencing the American church. It is said right before Jesus enters Jerusalem to be crucified, he sits on the mount looking over Jerusalem and says, this is from Matthew, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you, How often I wanted to gather your people together, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you didn't want that. Look, your house has left you deserted. I tell you, you won't see me until you say blessing to the one who comes in the Lord's name. When I see our American church divided over social justice issues like Black Lives Matter, I find myself saying, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. When I see the American church embracing the negative side of capitalism that exploits the marginalized or turns our blind eyes because it lines our bank accounts, I say, I find myself saying, you who killed the prophets, stone those who are sent to you. When the American church starts embracing political saviors who do not reflect Christ in word or action, I find myself saying, you who killed the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. And yet, throughout this study, we have learned Hosea had a call to love Gomer. Christ still goes to Jerusalem to die for those who killed the prophets, who stoned those who were sent to you. So I find myself saying now, even more, I must love them too. I must learn to embrace the term evangelical. I must learn to be a part of the American church. Now, this does not mean, just as Hosea called Israel out, that I should stifle my voice, that I should be quiet. This does not mean that we do not hold our leaders accountable. This does not mean that I do not recite scripture and truths that we find in the Gospels in order to not rock the boat. But when I do these things, they should be rooted in love and a justice that God offered to Israel, that God offered the American church, and that God has offered me. Because I said last week, I have received grace. The grace that I've received should also be the grace that I offer. But we cannot have grace without accountability and justice. I want to say that again, that grace means nothing without accountability and justice. So the grace I receive is not fully realized without the understanding of the accountability and justice. So the grace I offer in order to be un- to understood fully to the American church to others, must be rooted in accountability and justice. Not my form of accountability and justice, but the form that God gives us. 
I need not to let my own desires of accountability and justice cloud my vision for what God's vision is. Least I become like Israel, wandering the desert. Least I become like the Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb. And so how do I know that I'm walking this righteous path that God has placed before us? Well, by being wise, by understanding, and by observing. So I must embrace the American church, but I must do so by being wise, by understanding, and by observing. So I invite all of you who have ears to let them hear. If you feel the call to embrace the American church, then join me in loving them divinely and loving them wisely in understanding and observing God's grace through them and around them. I hope that you have enjoyed our journey through Hosea, and I hope that God has blessed you with some word from it, to know that God is with us in the midst of all the craziness of this world, because we know that God was with us in the midst of Hosea. Be blessed, my friends, and probably for the last way I'm ending a sermon this way, as vaccinations continue to roll out, and as soon as we're going to have a more free and open summer, Please, please, please remember to wash your hands.